everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from Continuum. Today, we're musing on what it means to be creative. Now, obviously, people who create tangible works of art fit this bill. The painters, musicians, crafters, and so on. Most of us would agree that doing these things using digital tools also counts as being creative, even if we can't hold the output in our hands. I myself was once told that I was dancing creatively, which I am choosing to interpret as a compliment. Now, can companies be creative? They're not exactly making art in the traditional sense, but you could argue that the methods that they use to come up with solutions that work for their customers is part of the creative process. And the way they communicate their efforts to people requires the work of a lot of creative people. Strike the wrong tone, and you run the risk of rubbing people the wrong way, even if your solution would have really helped them. Well, someone who thinks about this all of the time is Kelly Fredrickson, the Senior Vice President of Creative at Bank of America. She's responsible for all advertising and agency management for the corporation, including their internal advertising agency. Now, Bank of America, you might be thinking, creative? Well, Kelly makes a good case for creativity in the corporate realm when it comes to coming up with new and better ways to help people make sense of their lives. Kelly sat down recently with Continuum's Lee Moreau, a principal in service and experience design, as well as the founder of the renowned Bringing Sexy Back program. Lee and Kelly dug deeper into corporate creativity, positive psychology, and what the plans are for that llama. Hi, Kelly. How are you? Good, Lee. How are you? Well, I'm really glad you're here. Um, I know we just did a spin around the office, uh, and I'm excited to talk to you a little bit more about your work and some of the things you're really passionate about. Uh, if you could start off by just telling me, us a little bit about yourself, what you do, um, and uh, kind of what you're engaged with right now. Great. Go from there. Great. And thank you for giving me a tour. There's so much great energy here. It was really, really a good, a good afternoon. Um, so I work at Bank of America in marketing. Um, I'm responsible for creative and advertising and our agency relationships. Prior to joining the bank, I was in advertising for 20 years um, at Hill Holiday, Modernista, and with Bill Heater at Heater Advertising. So, and I feel like I have the best job at Bank of America because coming client side, I'm still able to stay close to the creative product, um, to stay close to folks that are generating ideas to help make things go from strategy to a real tangible idea. So um, lots of people wonder why I went client side, but I feel like I just, it was a natural kind of evolution for what I did. And I still get to work with all of the same great people. You, you just use the term creative product. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people would wonder what is the, what is the creative product at a large corporation like Bank of America? Can you describe that for people? Sure. I mean, it'll be my definition, right? I, I, I feel like, um, at Bank of America or at any company that understands it lives and dies by solving the needs and wants of their customers, right? The creative product could be um, creating something that, you know, for, for us at Bank of America would, you know, creating something that helps make someone's financial life better. You know, that could be a really neat update to an app or a way to understand their finances, like the Better Money Habits work that we have. Um, and the solution is creative, right? So it's not necessarily a tangible thing. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I actually hate when people say they're not creative because I think sort of uh, any problem solution sort of thought process is actually someone being creative. And people think like being creative is either painting or drawing or, you know, crafting. <laughs> but I think creative, the creative product comes out of solving someone's problem. 
So I left a voicemail um, this morning <laughs> with your friend LL or Double L. I don't yeah. know what he's called. Uh, in what, what In what must be the like best answering machine message of all time, except having Carl Castle from NPR leave yeah. you one. Um, so what's up with the llama? Yeah, what's up with the llama? Um, I have tried actually to get on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me to get Carl Castle to do my. Um, to do my voiceover, I haven't been successful there. So, the the llama. So the llama is um, an idea that Hill Holiday brought to us when we were thinking about how to incent people to download our mobile app, and they came up with this, you know, kind of crazy idea for um, us to have a talking llama that tells you about all the features and benefits of our mobile app, and um, you know, we we um, we were able to sort of have that bolder, somewhat funny, somewhat snarky voice, which a couple of years ago, we couldn't have had the permission to sort of be that bold with our voice, but it was at the right time they brought us that idea. And, and we went out and cast for the voice of the llama. And uh, we happened on this gentleman who um, just stuck, struck the right tone, right? Of, uh, you know, he's, he's funny. He's, uh, he's very uh, human, which is odd to say about uh, a llama. So we've created a cast of characters around the llama. He's got a girlfriend. Uh, he's got a friend named Earl that shows up. Um, and the thing that drives people to download our app most is the alert functionality, right? That we, you know, have this very simple way of letting you know, you sign up and we let you know your balance is low or, hey, did you make this purchase? And and he's able to, in a really funny way, bring that up to life. So he's worked for us. And um, and his the voicemail, we were working, uh, having him interview some of our executives and we were filming around the office, and uh, I left my phone on the table, and he picked it up and recorded that <laughs> that voicemail. And um, I see people call me, and then hang up, and then call back because they realize they they don't think they got me, and then they realize it's the llama, so they call back to listen to the whole thing. So they're not just trying to listen to the llama twice. <laughs> yeah. No. So. Uh, so you you just said that you may not have had permission a couple of years ago uh, to to introduce something yeah. as uh, inventive yeah. or irreverent. Um, talk about that process. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we all sort of um, we went through the financial crisis in two thousand and eight, right? And uh, Bank of America, um, along with all the other financial institutions, and uh, you know, and everybody um, went through the financial crisis, and so. You know, it was our job to look at um, what things do we have, do we continue to do that will help somebody make their financial life better, right? And our focus was very much on, you know, how can we be better? What do our customers need? Um, and, you know, for a brand in that time, you know, you, you have to, you know, signal that you understand that, you know, that, like this is, um, this is, something that we all have to work together to get out of. Uh, and so we wouldn't have had permission, nor would we have wanted to have been irreverent or inventive or funny. Uh, we wanted to tell people, you know, about our products. And we did. We, we Our advertising, our marketing, everything was on the strength of the features and benefits of our products for years because, you know, we, we did have, you know, we developed better money habits during that time to show people sort of like, you know, how do you, you know, if you have a goal, how do you achieve that goal? Here are some things you can do. Um, and it was always from a tone of what you could do, not what you should do, right? So we had, we were very, very careful with our voice and our tone during that time. Um, and things, but things are looking up. The economy is is brightening, right? There are green shoots everywhere. 
in the past couple of years, people are feeling better. Um, spending is is going up, and I think that you know, and the mobile app, which is a really great way to access all that the bank has to offer, is very different than telling somebody, you know, here's how you could build a budget, or let's talk about retirement, right? Let's let's talk about planning for your future, and so the the llama fit the mobile app differently, and and I think um, our customers gave us good feedback, so I think we we made a good bet there. Uh, so I've seen a lot of activity recently on Twitter and through other channels related to your role in the Special Olympics. And I yeah. wonder if you could talk about or describe that relationship. So, well, um, so two things about that. The bank has had uh, a 30-year relationship with Special Olympics. It's been a longstanding uh, relationship where we've supported a lot of their activity. We really ramped that up Um I think it's two years ago now when the global games, the global summer games were in Los Angeles and um, the bank helped Special Olympics set up a relay across America and we had um, uh, three torch relays uh, that you know came from Greece where the torch had been the last games and uh, landed on the east coast of the United States and went across and typically the um, police carried the torch, the Special Olympics torch. And so we, we, you know, we sort of enhanced their march across the states. And when we got to LA, they carried it into the stadium. And so our efforts really centered around that. And we ramped up, you know, our partnership that year. So recently, the global games for the winter were in Austria. And so I got the good fortune of being um, sort of the ambassador from the bank to go over there and uh, we started something called Unified Talks, where we had a series of talks there with um, uh, people from um, the business world, uh, activists, actors, you know, um, and Special Olympic athlete leaders speaking. And so, you know, they their their whole mantra of play unified. We created Talk Unified, and um, you know, I was prepared, Lee, for you know the accomplishment of sport, right? And and sort of watching somebody go across the finish line or, you know, nail a jump in, in, in a skating event or something or, or win a race. And I was prepared for sort of like all of that would come with that, right? The elation of achievement after years of work. What I was more blown away by was um, the athlete leaders and uh, how much they've gotten out of their Special Olympics relationship. So Bank of America supports the Athlete Leader Program, and uh, there's the uh, Global Ambassadors for Special Olympics. There are 12 of them, and they get like a four-year stint, uh, and that's all uh, supported by um, Bank of America. And they're given training. So, you know, four years ago, um, there's a gentleman from Botswana, Bright, Brightfield Shadi, and uh, he didn't speak English three years ago when he became, he's now completely fluent and is such a leader and is so eloquent about what his colleagues and athletes need and bringing it back to his hometown of Botswana. That's the part where I was like blown away. It was a life altering experience to be in Austria for eight days. I see a common thread here, obviously, yeah. some of the things that I know about you. Um, uh, I know you spoke at the 3% conference last year. Uh, and I've watched the YouTube video of your talk, and I, you know, it still sometimes surprises me when I'm moved by watching an online video. I, I, I'm sometimes you're yeah. just like struck by that, yeah. um, and I was, I was moved by yeah. the experience just watching Thank you. Your, yeah. your video. Um, 
do you mind sharing some of your perspectives on positive psychology that yours was kind of at the root or yeah. the heart of that talk? Yeah. Well, thank you for watching. Um, so this is sort of like a personal passion project of mine. Um, a couple of years ago, I took a certification course in positive psychology. Um, and uh, the, the bank was very supportive of doing that. But I've sort of, you know, this is like what I do sort of when I'm not at work. And um, I write a lot about it and I try to talk about it as much as I can. So positive psychology is the study of who we are at our best. Um, and it's the scientific study of, of, of who we are at our best. Um, everybody knows sort of, you know, B.F. Skinner and behavioral psychology, and everybody knows Freud and psychoanalysis. And, and the reason everybody knows about that is because there's a lot of research and, uh, you know, there's one way to bring that forward. And um, in the 50s, there was something called humanistic psychology. Um, and a lot of our group therapy and social work comes from that era. But there wasn't there wasn't a rigor put to it, no scientific sort of research. Um, so in 1998, Marty Seligman, who's the head of psychology at UPenn, uh, was named president of the American Psychological Association. And he said he was going to bring a network of scholars to positive psychology so that he could bring it forward into the world. And so that's why sort of you're hearing a lot about it now, because it's, you know, almost 20 years later. So it takes that long, I think, for something to sort of really blossom. Um, but we learned... Um, that, or I learned that um, happiness is a one day at a time adventure. <laughs> um, and that uh, my happy and your happy are very different, right? And the, the goal isn't with positive psychology to be happy all the time, because that would be false, right? The goal is, what can I do each day that's going to help me be more resi resilient, live more fully, and be happier? Right, so not happy, but happier. Um, and so, as I was doing this year, I started telling my friends that I was whittling away the things that didn't matter. And, and suddenly, I had the time that I had been seeking. Right, because I had been sort of like, why am I living? Why am I so busy? And I don't have time to do the things that I want to do. And um, we did a series of thirty-day challenges. 30 days of gratitude, like very, you know, like we did them as a team, 30 days of kindness. And, uh, and, and then I um, decided to do a couple on my own and I did 30 days of showing up for myself. And so every day I would, I, you know, record at the end of the day, today I showed up for myself by, right. Um, big and small ways. And, uh, and then I started to notice that, <clears throat> excuse me, that, um, when I said no to things, that didn't serve sort of who I wanted to bring into the world, that um, that was sort of a way of showing up for myself. So I did 30 days of saying no. So anyway, so I thought I was whittling, right? I was whittling away these things. And then my friend Judy said that I need to stop talking about whittling because I didn't know anything about it. She was right. I have never whittled anything in my life. <laughs> um, so I got a book. I read about whittling. I still have never whittled, actually. Um, but in whittling, there are four things you can do. You prepare the blank, you choose the right knife, you center the blade, and you work with the grain, right? And for me, that was a metaphor for what I had been doing that whole year, right? Um, preparing the blank, sort of deciding who I wanted to bring into the world, who am I at my core. Um, picking the right knife like you don't need more than one really sharp knife in whittling and so I, I you know 
I thought every single tool they taught us in our year of positive psychology was something I had to I put on, and it, it turned out I didn't. I just needed to pick one really good one. My one is walking. I walk every day. Um, and then centering the blade, because if your blade isn't centered, then you reduce your power because you lose leverage on, from your knife. And I'm sure guys at Continuum know this because they're whittling and carving and chopping all the time things into awesome prototypes. So center the blade. And I centered by savoring the best moment of the day every day. And that would set me up for a really great day the next day. Um, and then working with the grain is the last thing, right? Because if you're not working with the grain, you're going to hurt yourself. If you're, if you're trying to be something you're not. And the work, it's like work, the practice, and grain, your grain, who are you at your most authentic self? And all of that takes time and practice. So that's, that, that's like, that's my passion project is, is not sort of telling somebody how to do it, but sort of saying, Hey, here's how I did it. This is the result I got. Maybe, maybe I've got something. I don't know. Um, I'm intrigued because you just said when, when you started that whole story, you said we learned and then you corrected yourself and said, <laughs> I learned. And then you talked about the story where you, where you learned in fact, but the implication is that other people are learning from this. So how yeah. do you apply this? Yeah. Um, day to day with other people and, and are you learning together yeah when, you know it's funny because there was 200 of us in the class that did this year long certificate so yeah I think when I say we I, I'm probably referring to my to my classmates um, but I did I have brought it back to my team um, at Bank of America you know we sat down and did a couple of who are you at your core exercises um, that I had learned and we used them with each other and um part of that exercise is sort of talking about the person that you admire most, right? And, um, you know, David Isay from StoryCorps, I don't know if you're a StoryCorps fan, but he says that, you know, there's nothing more important than being heard in your own story. And so just that sharing with your teammate that you might not have shared that personal bit with allows them to know you a little bit better and then respond to you differently, you know? Um, so I think that I've brought it into my work. Um, the resilient part, I mean, you know, we we have, you know, leaving the house every day, going to work for as many hours as we do. Um, I, I need that help transitioning either from home into work and from work into home, right? Because it's the, the two places are on two totally different speeds. Uh, so this has helped me do that too, because you know sometimes I go home and I'm on work speed, and nobody wants mom on work speed. <laughs> and if I and and if I go into work on home speed, I'm not going to get anything done, right? So it's uh, how do you integrate those? So we do a lot of employee experience work here in helping companies understand how to mobilize their, you know, boots on the ground, their their teams. And what have you? I'm wondering, and a lot of the one of the key questions that keeps coming up is around balance. Yeah. But how do you define balance or describe balance working in your life? Yeah, I mean it's funny because I used to always try to think about balancing it. Um, you know, for a long time I worked four days a week, and that was a solution when my children were very young. I worked Monday through Thursday, and I was home Friday through Sunday, and I thought I was balancing, <laughs> right? And it turns out it's like less for me about balancing things and sort of looking at, you know, how many hours of this and how many hours of that. And it's more about how am I integrating them um, so that I'm thriving in, in both places. And, and that's sort of what I mean about, you know, 
coming down from the energy that you need at work into the energy that you need at home. They're both different energies. And so it really isn't about time, right? It's about sort of where are you putting your energy and how are you integrating those things so that you have some for both. There used to be this sign in my um, kitchen that said, children spell love, T-I-M-E. And I used to think it was like, so true you know there are truths that you hold on to in your life and now i don't think that it's time i think it's you know the kind of energy you're giving your kids is really what love is right like if you're present for 15 minutes doing whatever it is that you need to be doing with your kid versus like you're there for four hours but you're on your blackberry the whole time like what's better like it's not quantity of time right so I think that's what's the, the, the delve into positive psychology has helped me see that stuff differently. So I did the um, the who do you admire? Oh, you did activity. I'll, we can talk about that later. Um, but it was uh, I learned something because I, I actually picked people I wouldn't. Yeah. Two people, but people I wouldn't have thought of. So anyway, thank you for that because it was helpful, and I'll tell my grandmother about it. Oh. I want to talk a little bit about um, your day job again. My day uh, job, and, and, yeah. <laughs> and you know we're you know we're an innovation consultancy here, mm-hmm. so I want to talk about when you think about what you're doing with these passion projects and what you're doing with marketing, and there's they're obviously converging. Mm-hmm. Um, but where do you see the next marketing going in the future? What is going to be innovative in marketing in the future? Where are we heading? And do you see some of these things that you're so engaged in? personally, emotionally, yeah. being brought to bear in that world or, or not? And is there a crisis? I'm, I'm very yeah. curious. I, so I think, um, if you'd permit me, two-part answer, because I, I do think that um, the authenticity, right? So authenticity and bringing your most authentic self into the world, right? Because it's truly like all you have, right? <laughs> um, and authenticity and being authentic and practicing that and giving yourself permission to do that raises your self-esteem. But in a team, if everybody's bringing their authentic self, it raises the opportunity for innovation, which, you know, and, and that to me is super interesting, right? So if you have a, a group of people who are not really bringing their true selves to the project, then you, you can't innovate. So I do think there's application to, um, uh, you know, and I think that's all because like when you're trying to innovate, you're trying to bring new ideas, it's a very vulnerable space, right? And unless you sort of feel that safety in a team where you can be yourself, like how can you come up with innovative ideas? So I think that 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 is like for me, like a a truth. Um, What's next in marketing? I mean, I, I think that it's unlocking all of this data that we have, right? Like um, we have tremendous amounts of data. I mean, if you just look on anybody's computer and see the little piece of paper over the camera that that you're preventing somebody from taking data of you Um, and and that all the apps on your phone that can track where you are and what you do and what you search, um, how we care for that data and what we do with it to benefit our customers is what where we're going to take marketing next, right? Um, and 
you know, I, Lou Pascalis, a friend of mine and I, who I work with at the bank, you know, we talk about data being the creative muse, right? And that that's really what should be driving creativity because you have the information, you can understand the customer, what they need, what they want, bring it to them in a really great way. That That is, that is um, a very obvious answer, but a very true answer. Unfortunately, the... the uh, data may be the muse, but it doesn't feel amusing, right? The way that it's yeah. being leveraged right now. So how, where do you think we'll, we need to go to actually have that be more engaging and feel that, that it's okay to have you and your life and your data all being engaged with oh. the brands that you yeah. partner, partner with? Right? Well, it's interesting because I, I feel like the... Um, the permission that people are giving, understanding, like, you know me. I know you have all that data about me. If you do something good with it, I'll give you permission to know more about me, right? So I think that's where, I don't know that it has to be amusing, but I think um, if it feels creepy, then you failed, right? So I've read that you, <laughs> a description of you as sort of an irreverent leader, like, I want to talk about that and that, and that you've sort of spent your career supporting the creative process, um, generating and delivering new ideas to the marketplace. That's a perception of you. Mm-hmm. Talk about that in context of everything else that we've, we've described. Um, you know, I, so I came to work one day and my nameplate had been changed. Uh, so that my first name was Frank, not Kelly. Um, because, um, I don't know. It's just that's who I am. I sort of uh, speak my mind, tell it like it is. You know, I always say to my kids, how it is is how it is. Like, you know, I'm, um, and so I think that irreverent piece comes from that, that um, uh, if you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an answer. I'm not going to, you know, perhaps sugarcoat it sometimes. And and I think that that's, that's always a skill. Like there's, there's a woman that uh, runs our account and the way that she starts um, when she's got to deliver sort of maybe not not bad news, but, you know, news that she needs you to hear. It's, all, it's so graceful. And the preparation for it is so nice that, you know, she just kind of leads you in. And, um, and I, don't, I don't have that. I just don't have it. I've tried. I just kind of, you know, so I think that maybe it's the irreverent is the frankness. Um, but in terms of... Um, uh, the creative people and what they need. I, I um, that's I've sort of spent my whole career. If I had known that there was such a thing as copywriting when I started in advertising, I probably would have tried to do that. Um, but I I took one class in college. I was a marketing major. My advertising class was my favorite class, um, and I sort of took any job that I could get. And then um, was encouraged to go into broadcast and became a, a, a TV producer. And awesome. I loved it, you know. And, and in that, you know, you've got the TV producer, the writer, and the art director. Now it's maybe a digital producer, a writer, and an art director. But um, that's where I learned sort of what creative people need, right? They need sort of space and time to create ideas. Um, and they need really good input and information, right? Because they're going to solve whatever problem you give them. Um, so they need really good, clear 
input, um, and they need sort of uh, honest feedback when they when they bring it back. Um, but that space to think and and time to do it, I think, um, is the thing that a really good producer provides to a creative team. And so I've always sort of tried to protect that um, in in any job. I mean, I'm certainly not a TV producer anymore, but a lot of the work I do is producer-like, you know, trying to um, take something from strategy to a real tangible product. Um, And uh, I I think it's, um, I think any good idea (laughs) needs to be loved. And love is such like a weird word to use when you work in a corporation. Um, But that's really what it's got to get, right? (laughs) And so... um, a good TV producer sort of surrounds a creative team and that sort of like feeling of, you know, you've got the right environment to produce. You've got the love. You got the love. Exactly. Um, it strikes me that in the, a lot of clients do come to us, um, perhaps having been defining and trying to solve the wrong problems Mm -hmm. for quite some time Mm -hmm. because they didn't have the right space, time, info, input, surrounding activities and so they were they were solving things they were just solving the wrong things right. for periods of time and, and that's often something that we're having to confront um you, you've said in the past regarding marketers our job is to move people to feel something mm. to to have them engage to to buy to click to sort of activate um if they don't they won't do anything yeah if they don't feel it yeah talk to that um you know, I think that uh, when someone de- and you probably come across this all the time, right? When someone develops a product or a new feature for a product, they've spent you know some good amount of their life dedicated to creating that. And so, when they want to know, it's time to sort of bring it out into the world, and they have to sort of let it go. Um, there's a tendency to want to say every single thing about it, and that's going to be what you know, turn somebody on and, and that they're going to want to go buy it. Right. But that's just not the case. Right. <laughs> they, you know, um, the reason that most people carry iPhones might not be because it's more technically advanced than a Samsung phone. That might not be why they're carrying it. And I don't even know if it's truly which one is more technical. The reason somebody carries an iPhone is because they're emotionally connected to it, right? And so I feel like the same is true in marketing any product. What is the emotional connection that you can help somebody see? What is the emotional value in you being attached to that product or service? And if they don't feel that, then they're not going to, you know, um, click, buy, engage, read, share, right? All the things that we want them to do. Um, And so that is a constant conversation that we have, you know, what's the one thing you want me to tell the world? And then we'll go and uh, work with the people that can help tell it. Um, I I feel like that that's something that we work on all the time. And like with the llama, like, he tells that one thing, he tells it in a funny way. And for some reason, people connect. The biggest question we get is why a llama? And I I don't know that they, we've hit on some weird cultural thing. Like there are llamas everywhere, Lee. I don't know why (laughs) there are llamas everywhere, but. 
I don't even know where to go after that, but I'm, I'm just struck by all the llamas that I'm replaying in my head, <laughs> right. so it's a little distracting. Um, we, you know, we believe in the importance of human-centered design here at Continuum, yeah. and I'm wondering how you're bringing that into your work or work more generally um, at Bank of America. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, our, our, our guiding principles are to speak in a very uh, human eye level way um, to understand our customers' needs and to relate to them on a human level. We are a giant corporation, um, but we're a giant corporation made up of people. And when you think about the bank, right, um, we often get feedback that people love the people in the banking center. Um, They don't necessarily love us as a corporation, but they love the people. So how can we then um, communicate, act, behave, like people, right? So that they can relate to us. And so we do a lot of work uh, training around um, just that, right? How do you have an eye-level conversation with your customer? Or, and, and how do you have an eye-level conversation when you're not with your customer and they're just sort of reading something that you've written or interacting with the brand in some way? I, I, I think, you know, I, I think human-centered design, what other kind of design would there be, right? It's so interesting. Um, but uh, because because who's all the design for? Um, but I think that's the way we do it is you know training and thinking about you know how do we how do we speak to somebody in an accessible eye level transparent way. So um, for I guess it, it's weird doing these podcasts because nobody can see us. But yeah, for those for people who are listening, this for me has been an incredibly emotional conversation, oh. um, and I'm really grateful for you sharing your insights and your time. So thank you thank so much. Thank you, Kelly. thank you, Lee. Thanks for giving me a tour. It's a really, really awesome afternoon. Thanks. The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and the workplace, and we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks to Lee and Kelly for their great conversation today. Many thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Numerous gratitudes to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm